0: Thank you. Thanks to all of you for making it out tonight. It's hard to believe this is our second-to-last reading and our last off-campus reading, so it's crazy how fast the year has gone. Um, We thank you so much for your support, and a big thank you to Skylight Books for supporting us over the years. It's been great. This is an excellent bookstore. It's a great place to be, and it's beautiful. Happy to be here. I know, the tree and the skylights, plural. I
1: was
2: expecting only one. <laughs> um, I'm really happy to introduce Stefan Carlson tonight. I just want to first, if we can remember the first reading s- series this fall, remember when that happened? It's a really long time ago. But Stefan did this amazing thing where he had a projection, and it was like video game, and it just was ama- This isn't part of my introduction. Okay, I'll do it better now. Okay. <clears throat> Stephan Carlson is a poet from Redlands, California. He graduated from UCLA where he served as the editor for the lit journal Westwind. His poems have appeared in The Great American Literary Magazine, Forklift, Ohio, and Circle Poetry Journal. Um, I think what's most striking about Stephen's poems is the absolute exhilaration the speaker feels in ordinary moments. He can't believe he has the good luck to drink a latte to drive a car, that he gets to live in the world where dinosaurs once roamed the earth. Um, in his poem, he says, we can only imagine the carnival of feathers, the claw marks, about the, uh, which is coming from his poem called The Mating Rituals of Dinosaurs. And later the speaker laments, but now all we have of them is bone. This childlike energy, wonder, and sense of astonishment and beauty carries over to us as readers. When reading Stefan's poems, we feel for a minute that the world is truly as magical and amazing and wonderful as the speaker thinks it is. Uh, Please join me in welcoming Stefan Carlson.
1: Hi, everybody. Can you hear me? Great. Okay. Thank you so much, Kathleen. That was amazing. Um, I think I'll start off with that poem that she mentioned. Um, I did realize as I was preparing for this that I'm starting with the poem that deals with dinosaurs and extinction, and then ending with the poem that kind of thinks about like human extinction, so it's just a lot of kind of negative feelings, but you know, it'll, it'll, it'll be okay. We'll get through it. Um, Alright, so The Mating Rituals of Dinosaurs. We can only imagine the carnival of feathers, the claw marks, footwork, the calls loud as car alarms, the close calls when love bites, broke scales, or tails tangled, colossal bodies locked like awkward teens in twiggy-armed prom hugs, tank-heavy torsos twirling in mano-a-mano machete-tooth tango, this tyrannosaurus rumpus, this dream rite. It is all we can muster up. We imagine... We make the dead matter rise up and dance. We have the right to dream. But all we have of them is bone. We walk through museums, footsteps echoing in the halls of sex, and perhaps it never crosses our minds these fossils had to propagate. But when we make love, we conjure up the sacred bone dance, the deplumed, unfleshed spectacle of fossil on fossil, skeletons stomping until rib cage locks with rib cage, skulls rubbing gently as bro- bone dry heaves as bone dry roars heave from untongued jaws, mandibles gaping until they unhinge, and scapulae, vertebrae, pelvises, all bones collapse in a heaping rubble of delight for us to find them buried. A stripped T-Rex is all we know. We are used to lack. We imagine a time long ago when we used to relax with our partners but now in sex there is something missing, there is less thrilling, there is the meteor that will kill us, it's hurtling to the surface with merciless hurt, it's coming, come, coming, it's crumbling into dust, it's gone and my want is meteor for having tasted less than less. This next poem, I've, I've always wanted to write about a diner. I just love going to diners late at night and drinking coffee at 2 in the morning. and So I've, I've, I've long tried to do it, but been unsuccessful. So finally I realized, you know what, Like I can't describe this experience from my own point of view, so I'll let the diner tell the story. Um, so here is the rhyme of America's diner. Here comes the boy, restless, to take his booth in my back corner. Here in me, the lights glow 24-7 and the claw crane's steely hand clutches air above plush homeless pets. Chocolate malt oozes from the nozzle down the server's steady fingers and she licks it off, surfacing from the black lagoon of my back room to welcome a drunk couple. Her hair unbunning from a scrunchie she grabbed off her daughter's bedside table. All the spoons stir. It's devil's hour at Denny's. The other diners remain unawed as the boy orders coffee with just a nod to the server. And sure enough, breakfast follows. He slurps oatmeal from a mother-of-pearl bowl shallow as a brute father shorn off skull. Swamps his plate with spilled yolks. Leaves not a morsel unnod. He's the kind who'll claw for more and more love until the world's moreless. Belly full, sweating through the Nautilus Aerobics Plus pullover, he dug up deep from his parents' closet, he nods off, head dropping over empty bowl like a diving bell to seabed. Stuck in my own surveillance cam's glittering eye, I cannot unknot myself from this boy who makes me want to ride whirlpools like carousels to uncork god-deep grottos with submersible floodlights to rest necks free from kraken chokeholds and slug yoky squid eyes big as dinner plates. But I too spend nights in public hoping to pass unnoticed, all to unknow my own business. Boy, who knows what hunger drives you sleepless from your parents' house. But tonight, I'll be your second home, your newly grown Nautilus chamber. A highway wind howls through our haunt, sweeping placemats into faces, kicking hair up like upturned lobster legs, but my yellow logo, that always glowing corpusant, stays afloat because no heart remains open like Denny's. Waking, you fish your pockets for cash and dredge up nada, but the server, knowing kids, tosses you a life buoy, a freebie just this once, and you wade home guilt-free, gills full of kindness, Rest tonight, at least, unweighted by the glitz of night's billion-plus doubloons. All right, so this next poem, um, it makes a reference to... A particular science experiment that was done in 1997. It was um, it, it was this mouse that you might have seen pictures of it called the Vacanti mouse that had this kind of ear-like structure growing out of its back. Um, it actually wasn't like a real functioning ear but it was like this, this cartilage structure that looked like an ear so that mouse um, makes a cameo in this poem. Um, and it's called Fable of the Ear Infections. And it's a fable but a lot of this actually happened in a weird way. Um, okay Fable of the Ear Infections. It was a time when your mother suffered as a baby. Your grandfather held her to his chest while your grandmother held her ear shut as the neuron-severing cry that tied them together split the neighbors from their separate dreams, splicing them back to their cell-tight rooms threaded by tunnels of mice. How could they sleep when tomorrow the surgeon would slice their daughter's eardrums, clearing a space for fluid-draining tubes? Her father cooed into her clogged up cochlea, his voice lost in her inner ear's labyrinth like a mouse in an experiment. This was a time when one lab mouse, hairless as a newborn baby and bearing on its back a human ear, invaded every TV screen. With the cartilage structure stretching its pink skin, it sniffed its way forward, unburdened by the weight of the future, exploring the scientist's latex palm as he held his walking ear in wonder. The way that years later your mother held Lady, her first pet, a fancy mouse, as it lay dying. She stroked between its ears and spoke small words soft as mice, and though Lady was not healed, the words kept it company as they scurried around the living room. Her mother prepared her speech about heaven while her father went digging around for a shoebox. They both recalled the hole their daughter's surgery and doctor's visits put them in. That sleepless night back when they were young and panicked with no parents to calm them, when their apartment sank into the ground, the network of burrows that once held them afloat collapsing under their weight till out the buried window in deep dirt they saw one thousand nests of mice repairing their canals, bearing on their backs the building they carried on with their plans clearing the path that was always there, their mouse hole out so that your mother could someday hear your voice squeak through and this next poem also deals with a science experiment but of another sort Um, kind of a science experiment gone wrong wrong, actually, Um, it's called Memory Replacement Test test subject expressed a fondness for rabbits having never owned one due to her mother's alleged allergies so we replaced each of her hairier memories with bunnies the day her grandma died the subject now remembers kissing a rabbit's cold nose her brother's accident became a fluff puddle of head-butting bunnies there's no telling how many rabbit explosions she recalls from watching the news but the subject went too far. Her sixth grade dance, now a bacchanal of hopping cottontails. Her first day of school, an extended grooming session. Every awkward high school hip-up, hiccup brim, dr- brimming with binkies. Ecstatic leaps, kicks, head flicks the works. The subject stares at us unblinking, ears pricked up. When she licks up water from her sippy bottle, she rattles the cage where we keep her, keeping us up at night. It's unclear if she remembers us. All right. So this is the last poem I'll be reading. It's actually kind of a prose poem, um, And this one's called "Know-Nothing." As we descend from the grapevine, the golden mountains like God's unclenching knuckles release us into the Central Valley, my girlfriend at the wheel, me the navigator with Google Maps in hand, and as I watch us inch ever closer on that virtual road toward the blood droplet pin of our parents' home, our trusty blue blip suddenly vanishes from the app. A glitch? We hardly blink at our disappearance off the face of Google's earth. Is this hell, being unaccounted for, or comfort, knowing they can't place us? I wait for a signal to return. Comfort is the cup of coffee we shared whose warmth I memorialized in a picture I posted to my friends online. I loved the creamy leaf design that the barista poured so carefully into the cup. and loved the way the leaf stretched into a vine as we sipped from opposite ends. It's a comfort to think that someday when there is no Central Valley, no beauty, no people left to know God, no God, no nothing, this coffee will survive as data with us, a tingling nothingness in the ghost of the internet, the cup warming the palms of time. That cup is long empty. We've arrived, unpacked the car, hugged and greeted her family, petted each cat, and we are too in love to believe this world will vanish forever. It's hard to imagine the demise of human memory when the one you love is breathing softly against your cheek. We lie in her childhood bed together and worry there will be no afterlife for our love. I wonder, I propose when the universe is finally ending and all matter gets pulled apart if a particle that once made up my body were to come in contact with one of yours would there be any recognition that they had touched once before an eternity ago the image of everything she knows and loves high school friends, her lost bunny her favorite hair salon, everything here and gone, being pulled to shreds passes through her mind or it doesn't what do I know She stirs, and mouths through a yawn. I hope there will be just a glimmer of recognition. I picture it. A quick flash in the dark. A trace of sensation with no one there to feel it but time itself. The raging urgency of our entire lives alluded to in an instant of chance collision. Yet it is possible too that these particles that now make our bodies buzz have come in contact long before in the primordial brew, and our resting here together is the very overlooked glimmer of recognition we long for. Thank you very much. (laughs) And now I have the pleasure of introducing Laura Fitzgerald. Laura Fitzgerald grew up in Los Angeles and San Diego and has formerly lived in San Francisco. She graduated from San Francisco State University with a degree in textile art and dance and worked her way up from pantry person to sous chef in a series of restaurants. She lives in Irvine with her nine-year-old daughter, a crawfish named Sheila, and sister and, sister and brother cat Smokey and Noki, which are great cat names, by <laughs> the way. They moved from Los Angeles, where she had been living since 2001. In her stories, Laura has a way of seeing what lies at the periphery, the unseen or unacknowledged strangeness all around us. Nothing escapes her attention. Her characters are so strange that their bizarreness might allow them to pass unnoticed. But when she brings them into focus for us, we cannot look away. Her writing is visceral, immersive. When her characters are in danger, we feel their sweat down our necks. We hear their panting in our ears. We smell everything as if for the last time. When they want to scream, so do we. And when no one hears that scream, when no one comes to help, we feel it all the more intensely ripping through us. And we're reminded what a wild thing it is to be alive. So please join me in welcoming Laura Fitzgerald.
3: Thank you very much, Stefan. I'm gonna be reading from a short story that I recently wrote. Um, it's abridged and um, excerpt, of course (laughs) otherwise you'd be here for a very long time and it's called documentary you pick up the Hungarians from LAX and drive them to our apartment outside of Chinatown the front door swings toward my readied filming iPhone on the tripod you come in first carrying a large, battered cardboard box wrapped entirely in clear packing tape. What's inside? I ask from behind the tripod. Just the tatami mats for the showcase, you say, without looking at me or the iPhone, breathing heavily from exertion. Heavy? No, you say. It's going to rain. Tomás, István, and Esti come in after you, one by one, all carrying black duffel bags and long aluminum sword cases that bang inside our small entryway. They all have the same prominent nose as you, the same casual stance, even Esti. I make sure the iPhone is angled for a clear shot of each of our cheek-kissing hellos. I threatened to leave you, so you summoned your best leverage, Hungarian samurai. A gold-dipped and diamond-encrusted carrot I cannot refuse. With the promise of being able to film them practicing, their first ever showcase in Little Tokyo tomorrow, and an interview with Tomás for the documentary I want to make about their master, Zoltán. Zoltán, the reincarnated Japanese samurai who forged his own sword as a boy in a small Hungarian village. He traveled to Japan to seek a master, but could not find one. He returned to Hungary to build up a clan of hundreds. This will be the project that finally takes me somewhere, the creative angle unique enough to finally get enough funding to finish an entire documentary. Yes, I will have to sell my soul to you for just a little while longer. And yes, I will have to acknowledge that this last time you spit in my face was just maybe an accident, but you were simply mad. But it will be worth it. Like Herzog with his vision of pulling a steamship over a mountain in the Amazonian rainforest, I have a vision of Zoltan, the master. Because of the rain, I will not be able to get any battle footage of them charging with their swords drawn down the grassy hill in Elysian Park or skirmishes in front of a sweeping shot of Lincoln Heights, the river and rail yards, the state historic park, downtown, and Radio Hill with cheering from the afternoon game at Dodger Stadium in the background like I had planned, which means I will have to rely on scenes of of them practicing in our small living room on our brown carpet. I film you, Tomas, and Istvan upending the couch and moving it into our bedroom to make enough space. The wooden mat stand is ready and waiting with a rolled, previously soaked tatami mat impaled straight up on the wooden spike. You once told me that waterlogged bamboo mats approximate the density of flesh and that green bamboo is similar in strength to bone. Just to be safe, you move the fish tank too. Even though it's only a 10-gallon aquarium, it takes the four of you, straining, to carry it to the middle of the kitchen table, sloshing out a few inches in the process. I stopped filming to mop up the linoleum, and when I'm finished, Tomas has already made his first cuts. Tomas, still your best friend after all the years, the distance, is now the undisputed master of the room. The master's proxy. When Zoltan dies, Tomas will be the new master. This is the ranking and respect you've spoken of before. Can you please ask them to wait for me? I ask you. They want to go check out the ancestor temple next door and get lunch in Chinatown. I can't force this, you say. You'll be able to film the entire showcase in Little Tokyo tomorrow. Maybe you don't care if I threaten to leave you anymore. Maybe you're betting that your pull has the same old tar pit effect on me. But now, more than ever, I want this documentary to get off the ground. It has to. Istvan unsheaths his sword from where it's wedged into his black belt, bringing it across his body in a slow arc. But Tomas motions for him to stop and presents an upturned palm to me instead, saying, Alma soul? that's soul in Spanish you want my soul? I ask nem alma he says pulling me out from behind the tripod he opens my palm facing upward in front of the iPhone places an invisible tennis ball on top and steps back to wield a weighty invisible sword above his head bringing it down just before the invisible blade slices into my palm he wants to slice my soul in half maybe my heart too to vindicate you That's why he's here, isn't it? Apple, Esti says in a thick Hungarian accent, bringing one of my small Fuji apples from the kitchen. She's the only one who knows a few English words. Tomas places the apple into my palm and steps away from me. He says something to Esti, and she goes over and detaches the iPhone from the tripod and snaps it onto the Steadicam smoothie. I don't like this sudden change of plans. There's no reason I have to go through with being filmed like this right? I look away from the apple and over to Istvan standing near the couchless wall, his hands grasped in front of him, head slightly bowed with a look of martial readying. You have moved from your wall lean and have adopted Istvan's stance, maybe as a respectful gesture to Tomas. I know that you would not let anything gruesome happen to me. The control you seek is that, just that, control. A taming of wild pony me so that I can be harnessed and led, docile, to where you want me to go. Drink from the waters you deem are clean. Feed me the best unadulterated oats and untouched grasses. I could angle my hand so that the apple falls to the carpet and then walk out the door, a free woman. Yes, I could do this and be free from you and them and this documentary. Fuck Sultan, but I'm stuck. First, in the same old dare, the show-me-how-much-you-care-to-control-me dare, and second, in the overwhelming knowledge that this documentary will be the one. I sense that Tomas is centering himself, but I am unable to look at him, just the brown carpet below. He says something to you, which without me asking you translate as, he has to. T- he said to tell you that there is really no reason to cry, honey, especially for your own documentary. Not funny, I say. And with a whoosh and the split-second sound of severed skin, the apple is halved and falling off each side of my palm. And Tomás is slowly retracting his sword above me. Everyone, even gloomy Istvan, whoops inside the living room when Thomas's sword is neatly sheathed inside his belt. I bring my palm up to my face to get a closer look at the unchanged, still fucked up love line, short headline, and disappearing heart line. Impressed, yes, my heart pumping wildly. I want to get back behind my iPhone right away and do the interview with Tomas, but Esti, his wife, is over whispering something in his ear. They confer with you in Hungarian, and you smile broadly, which can't be a good sign. They asked if you want to have a lesson with Tomas, you say. If you want to cut a mat. And then the interview? Sure, you say. What you're really saying is, if I can fall in love with Tomas, I will be able to fall in love with you again. He's not only a proxy for the master, he's a proxy for you, too. Istvan kicks aside the spent mats on the floor and impales a new mat on the wooden stand for me, for Tomas and me. Tomas walks me to the mat and, standing directly behind me, brings his hands over mine like one sided gloves, guiding them to the handle of his sword. We pull it out of his belt. Este continues circling with the steady cam. You're back to leaning against the wall looking smug. Esteban is back to his bowed hands clasped in front of him, reverence. The sword is nearly weightless while Tomás grip around my hands. His body is warm against mine, and he smells like you. Soap clean, but without floral hint of peach that must run through his blood, too. He's the poor kid growing up with the dirt floor in your village who, at 40, is a hero in Hungary now, ready to die at any moment, which gives him the status of master, one with the moment, and now one with me. He speaks over my shoulder to you and you pull away from the wall, stand taller. He says you can only have a master if you are a disciple, you say. Okay. He says every cut you make is practiced to kill, to get the job done as fast as possible, to use the sword for what it is made for. Okay. Tomas guides me to bring his sword angled up steeply to the left corner of the living room ceiling and then in the slow figure eight above the mat, cutting back steeply up to the right corner. We almost grazed the wall. I just want to let you know that no one else has ever touched Tomas's cutting sword, not even Esti. This is a big deal, Freya. Is this the interview? I ask. What does respect mean to you? Tomas is asking. Do you really expect an answer to that? I ask you. Just think about it, you say. Tomas and I continue the figure eight. He says, ''Be in the moment.'' He says, ''Pay attention to the movement, only to the movement.'' ''He smells like you,'' I say. ''Of course.'' Ask him, ''Does everyone need a master?'' ''And how do you know when you find one?'' I say. ''Yes, Freya, everyone needs a master.'' ''Once you have one, you know it,'' you say in a confident, masterly tone. ''You don't have one,'' I point out. ''You're right.'' Ask him if he will protect me from you, from your rages. He will say that I am his brother and that he will always love me no matter what I do. Ask him if he will stop you when you hit me. Fuck you, Freya. You're making this about you again. You don't understand anything about this at all, do you? Ah. Maybe that's the end. <laughs> Is there something in there no, I just don't have it. That's the end. Cliffhanger. <laughs> hanger. <laughs> we'll leave it on a fuck you note. Um so I'd le- I'm happy to introduce you to our next reader, Sarah Peace. Uh, poet. Sarah is from the four-season land of Genesco, New York, and I looked it up so that I would know exactly where it is. It's roughly between Buffalo and Syracuse, not far from Lake Ontario. (laughs) Um, She received her BA in English from SUNY Fredonia where she also studied writing and dance. Sarah is a writer who is unafraid to gaze clear-eyed at her subjects, a family or perhaps a self, until they unfold in measures of reverence and decay and become altered, rearranged systems. In her poems, renewal isn't about perfect reordering, but a continued acknowledgement of the frictional space between each person. In addition to being grateful to Sarah for her poetry, I've been happy to share much discussion about our first-year comp students (laughs) who didn't listen to us in the fall or even in winter when we tried a little bit more uh, to get ourselves heard. And now in spring quarter, it's their own damn fault if they don't listen to Sarah because she's found a way to tell it like it is. Please join me in welcoming and listening to Sarah. Peace.
4: Thank you, Laura. That was wonderful. I am trying to get my students to listen to me. Um, I run, and I'm starting on a poem about the voice, trying to get someone to listen to a voice. Um, oh, sure. Thank you. Is this good? Okay. Remedies for a lost voice. Drink warm water sprinkled with cayenne pepper and honey. Simmer onions in a pan until they shriek and dissolve into syrup. Sip slowly. Chew ginger. Gargle salt water. Grind the beaks of three parakeets into a powder. Then decide you could never be so cruel. Tuck a token for Saint Blaise under your tongue and climb to the top of the nearest mountain, tall tree, or swing set to await his holy reply. Shield your throat from cold winds and the raspy croak of door hinges. Kiss a loud-mouthed stranger. Offer him your sea legs in exchange for his boldest speech sealed in a jar. Empty its contents over a pot of boiling rainwater and inhale the steam through your teeth. When called upon to speak, rub your legs together like a cricket and feel heat careen up through your gut and across your larynx to tear the seam from your lips. Adagio. You offer them up, the calloused toes, the stubby fingers, the elbows and earlobes and spine, You revel in this unbuilding, the knitted hamstrings, slack, gastrocnemius, unstrung and tossed away like receipts for all the work you put into them. You dismiss sentimental longing for the body you built by hand. You won't need it for much longer, but still you swallow a small ache. When it comes to bones, you're generous. You select two delicate clavicles and fling them wing-like to nowhere, your sternum lifted, shoulders thrown back. You had such lovely posture. Without the extra weight, you enjoy the fat, finally appreciate its tenderness. You scoop it out handfuls at a time, apologize before sending it singing. The skin is easy, you never felt quite comfortable. The hair, toenails always growing and trimming. It's the big ones you can't stand, the heart, the brain. The teeth somehow have lingered after all that chewing. And the voice box, the strings within, these you cannot bear to touch. You wait with nothing beating in your empty body. You hope to feel at home again soon. When nobody is looking, 27 children clamber up the gnarled limbs of a lilac bush. They pound dirty heels against each other's backs, snatch fistfuls of splinters, step across sunburned noses to propel their bodies higher than the rest. Nobody complains. Everybody imagines the glory of reaching the top. Before anyone climbs high enough, their mothers howl out of the house to pluck their careless children from the branches. All stand in the stony driveway and squint at the destruction their mothers describe. See how you've peeled back the bark. See the buds you've torn and gnashed and mauled and your sister's bruised cheekbone and your cousin's bleeding elbow. Not everything can grow back. For weeks they are solemn as they wait for pale purple to cloud from cracked twigs in forgiveness. And when, at last, a blossom appears, the meanest boy scales the ravaged branches before he can think. He must have that soft purple. The other twenty-six cannot blame him for taking it. They all understand how cruel it feels to want. When she was alive, the backyard at night looked like it had bullied the day away. Clothesline emptied of human shapes, swings holding their breath until morning. Now she floats through overgrown grass like a queen, chooses the low swing, wraps her fists around the rusted chains, and sits suspended inches above the ground. She watches her sister stuck under the oak tree, counting stars. Her mother, perched like a guest in the living room, lights off. Her father, through the kitchen window, stirring a pot of soup too big for her family. She lets them be. She knows any steps they take will stitch them tighter to this earth. This is my last one. Thanks for listening. Ungrateful girl goes home. The hills are not indigo, violet, cerulean. They are blue, and they make the mud into a valley. And my father makes the mud into clay. He spins on a wheel in the garage. He is crafting a mug a different wife could sip heavy creamed coffee from and pass to a docile child with cold hands. His own cracked fingers fill with earth. It sinks into his split thumbs, refuses to be made open and round. He slices the lopsided mug from the plate, shapes a handle, signs his name, glazes it ugly, bakes it in the kiln, fills it with black coffee, hands it to my mother who sips and abandons it. I lift its stubborn body, pretend my fingers don't fit its shape perfectly. Ask why he didn't use blue. That's it. Thank you. Thanks so much. I have the pleasure of introducing William, our last reader for tonight. William Hawkins is a second-year student in the program in fiction at UC Irvine. His work has most recently been published on tinhouse.com. William's writing makes me think about space as essential and terrifying. In his story, The Jumper, we are painfully aware of the distance between a man and his wife, and the crowd he stands in, and a boy in the water struggling to stay afloat. His characters speak only to amplify this distance between them, but through their frustrating inaction, both funny and tender, William's characters beg us to grab hold of anything around us, be it a life vest, a trash can, or a stranger in a crowd. Please join me in welcoming William Hawkins.
0: Let's see. I think I got it. Yeah, it's really big. I kind of feel like I'm looming. There's a fly that's been buzzing up here, bothering us, but that's okay. The fly is my spirit animal.
1: <laughs>
0: it is my spirit animal. It's really sad. Okay. Um, I got Bryce at least. I'll be reading two very short pieces uh, The Bronzes and one called Whale Watching. Poetry rules apply. I'll just go straight from the one to the other. The Bronzes. The bronzes were his idea, or maybe hers. She can't remember. It came up early in the morning inside the sheets when they were still bodies, warm and unobserved, when their skin circumvented the world. But, but the quiet sounds of waking had turned too quickly to talk, and talk had been about the day, as in, what are they going to do today? And just like that, they were people again. She hates being people because being people requires a place to be people in, requires people to see you being people. So they agreed upon the Getty, the Bronzes exhibit, but which of them brought it up, him or her? She needs to know because if she brought it up, it was if it was her idea, that means at the end of this, he'll be the one to praise her for it or blame her for it. But however it goes, he will be the judge of it Unless it was his idea. And if it was his idea, then she is the one with the power to praise or blame. And if that's the case, she must decide which it will be. She must decide what she thinks of these recovered bodies. The exhibit is crowded. Everyone's bright idea today, apparently, to be at the Getty. Everyone moving in slow drifts around the pedestals. Museum employees in their cheap clo- coats watching, professionally angry. No photos, no photos, please. A placard tells her the bronzes were cast in the late Hel- Hellenistic period, excuse me, which she knows is Greek but otherwise means nothing to her. It also says most of the bronzes in the ex- in the exhibit were salvaged from the seafloor, that, indeed, most bronze statues of the Hellenistic period were melted down for, well, they're bronze but these statues survived they survived by being lost when temples and palaces fell into the sea from cliffs which men thought the gods would never touch and she does love this about them she loves art that has survived and they are lovely things these fragmentary faces and polished bodies the attention given to their muscle and sinew absolutely remarkable this tension rendered in these alloys of copper and tin the feeling that they might suddenly spring from their pedestals And their faces, their expressions, have flaws. Flaws chiseled tenderly. That much is very clear. Flaws which bestow on these faces the sensibility of having suffered being alive. In colors of jade and malachite green, some are polished into a dully reflecting surface you can almost find your face in. The people, the people that surround her, these other patrons, together they make an impressionistic smear on the sculpture they observe. Where is he? He's moved away. He's looking at the sculpture of a warrior. The warrior's arm held stiffly to his side to hold what was probably a spear, but is now only bronze knobs only bronze knobs on either end of a closed fist. The bronzes do not have eyes. Another placard tells her the eyes, which are often inlaid silver, were easily lost, dislodged onto the sea floor, and is a shame, the, pla- the placards imply. But honestly, honest, honestly, she prefers their eyes hollow. She likes that the statues are empty inside, that this emptiness has a body to wear, a face from which it might peer. And she likes the idea of the eyes lost on some distant Mediterranean seafloor. She imagines a boy, brown skin burnished by the sun to a soft gold, his dark features curious, excited, his silhouettes shining as he leaps from the prowl of a boat, dives into the water. He is an oyster diver, this boy, or a mussel diver, something. He's looking for something, and he searches, his eyes open, burning in the salt water, fingers Scraping the sand, and what do they find but a single silver iris staring up at them, crusted in a bright green tarnish? Such strange pearls. Okay, okay, she loves the bronzes. She thinks this was a great idea, but was it hers? He's coming back. He's been walking around the pedestal of a bronze man a placard says was a famous athlete. And he comes to her, this man, this person she's inside the Getty with. And he wraps his arm around her waist and murmurs into her ear, they have amazing asses, don't they? They do have amazing asses. Perfect asses even. These are the asses that cast ash shadows on allegorical cave walls. So well have they been sculpted. And she is so delighted, so thrilled that this is her person. A man unafraid to see beauty and male nudity, that she surrenders to the cradle of his arm in easy joy. He nuzzles her cheek. How great that he nuzzles her cheek. That He's unafraid of his affection, his sentiment, even as the crowd parts around them. And he says, this was a great idea. Yes. Yes, this was her idea. Surely this was her idea. It's too perfect not to be. He loved her idea. And for a moment they stay in this pose. They return to the close world of their warmth as people walk around them marveling. That was a, this was a great idea, wasn't it? Wasn't it? All right. That was the bronzes, and the second piece is called uh, Whale Watching Them. Very short, in grandma letters, basically a paragraph. <laughs> All right. The fluke of a gray whale emerges from the ocean spray, and someone says, oh. Impossible to tell who, everyone faces the water, and no one is willing to turn their heads away. Maybe it was even me. I only know I heard it, soft as the moment it hoped to hold. A little, Oh. The whale emerges on a Saturday in late May, just a little past three in the afternoon. The sun has the sky to itself, and on the beach, the crowds are in repose before the Pacific, lying on towels with tropical fish colors, the usual sunbathers and sandcastle makers, the air already heavy with the summer perfume of salt water, sand, sunscreen, and dead fish. Until the fluke emerges from the spray and someone says, oh, and then we are all looking up, we are all standing, naked feet at the continent's end, as a gray whale rolls its leviathan backside out of the ocean water, as it blows out a breath it's been holding in that quiet deep none among us know. And the spray of its blowhole is lit by the sun, the swift prism of its breath. And we are all standing, me and my friends in our two small bathing suits, the family next to us speaking excited Mandarin, they fully dressed with sun hats, one of their little girls with the sand pail in one hand, pointing with a plastic shovel in the other. And two, the teenage girls on our other side, spaghetti-strapped and sun-kissed, asking each other, Is that a whale? Is that a whale? And up and down the beach, everyone is standing, shielding the sun from their eyes, walking forward in slow steps they don't know they're taking, approaching the water. And when the fluke emerges again, there are victorious yells, everyone asking each other, Did you see that? Did you see that? We want each other to know we saw the whale as it passed us on this long journey along the Pacific Rim, that we numbered among that host who stopped and stared and shielded the sun from their eyes, asking, Did you see that? Did you see that? All of us witness to the brief moment of the gray whale emerging before it returns to its blue and solitary world. Thanks.
1: You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.